0: Hello, welcome to ta Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be asking, who gets to decide what is Islamic? As any observer of the Islamic world will know, or indeed any regular listener to Akbos Chamber, there are a dizzying variety of different forms of Islam across the world, both today and across history. Yet, of course, every Muslim who follows one of those different versions believes it to be the true version of the faith. And this begs the question of who gets to decide what is and indeed what isn't Islam. In other words, who has the religious authority to define Islam? So in this episode, we're going to be exploring the social, historical and doctrinal dimensions of religious authority, and we're going to be doing so through the lenses of anthropology. Step by step, we're going to unpack the key components of religious authority, from revered historical founder figures and their living heirs or representatives, to the crucial components of respected texts and religious institutions that range from mosques and mystical orders to political parties, states, and even terrorist organizations such as ISIS. While we'll be looking at Islam from the analytical outside of the social sciences, specifically anthropology, we're also going to be examining how this approach relates to two foundational Islamic concepts. The Sunnah, the model or the example of the Prophet Muhammad and the Jama'a, the Muslim community. Helping us and guiding us in this anthropological exploration of Islamic religious authority is Ismail Fadri Atlas. He's an assistant professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic studies at New York University, and he's the author of What is Religious Authority? Cultivating Islamic Communities in Indonesia.
1: Ismail, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank you Niall, it's a pleasure to be here, I'm very honoured.
0: Oh well, it's it's our honour to be hosting and listening and talking to you today as we explore a really truly foundational question in studying Islam in understanding Islam whether as a Muslim or non-Muslim and that question is, which is a sort of a question which has vexed the minds as I say of Muslims as well as those who study Islam who defines what is Islamic? Who gets mm-hmm. to say this is must this is must in practice, this isn't? And we'll be exploring that today through your professional lenses as an anthropologist and answering this question then of defining religious authority. Who has the authority to define what is and isn't Muslim? So to start, of, start us off, Ismail, can you explain to us your model, the model you've generated in your recent book uh what is religious authority
1: mm-hmm.
0: so what is your model of religious authority in islam and indeed how is religious authority constructed mm-hmm.
1: uh thank you niall uh that's of course a, a big question that um i've been you know thinking for for a while now and uh, of course this is the the main question of my book what is religious uh, authority cultivating islamic communities in, in in indonesia which is really based on a fieldwork in in central java where i looked uh, where i live with um, a sufi masters for for 2 years the most Indonesia's most influential sufi master habib lutfi and i try to understand how he became what he is right a saint a living saint uh, to his followers but uh, also a charlatan for others uh, a pretender for others and it seems to me that that has always been the case with many you know, religious uh, figures of authority, uh, figures of, of religious authority. And, and what also um, uh, became evident to me is that he was not the only person in the city doing uh, uh, as assembling a community. There are other people, they are competing with one another, and they all claim to speak on behalf of the prophet. And they all try to present their connection to the prophetic past, which is for Muslim is the foundational past on which, you know, our actions and our thoughts and our uh, norms ought to be uh, based on. So from that experience, and also from my reading of, you know, history and and, and different um, uh, contexts, uh, uh, different Muslim communities uh, around the world, I got the sense that authority is a particular kind of relationship, a hierarchical relationship uh, that demands obedience without uh, resorting to coercion uh, uh, and force, right? And it is something that is intricately linked uh, to tradition uh, and some kind of temporal links or temporal connection to a past that is deemed foundational for a particular people. And for Muslims, of course, that, that foundational past is the prophetic uh, a pass, just as for the Romans, for example, the the, the foundation of pass was the foundation of, of of Rome. And Muslims, of course, see the Prophet as the role model, and the Quran, of course, legitimized the Prophet as the uh, uswa, right, as the uh, exemplar, and that his uh, sayings and his deeds are considered as normative, as sunnah or model of action or model for action. But the problem is, of course, that you know, the prophet died many centuries ago. So there is a temporal estrangement between Muslims and the prophet who is supposed to be the exemplar. And I begin to see that this temporal estrangement is really generative, right? Precisely because there's an estrangement from the prophetic past, then we begin to see myriad actors um, uh, making myriad claims uh, to connect Muslims to the prophetic past. And they use different, forms of connection uh, to the prophetic past in order to bolster their legitimacy as the connector, as connecting Muslims to the prophetic past. You have Sufis, you have jurists, you have Hadith transmitters, right? transmitters of prophetic sayings, you have storytellers, you have Caliphs, all of which you know, claim to be the link to the prophetic past. And of course, they use different kinds of uh, connection to the prophetic past from bloodline, right? Nasab, oh, I'm a descendant of the prophet, so I am uh, a a legitimate connector to the past. Or the Hadith folks would use isnad or chain of transmission. So I, I can teach you, I can transmit prophetic teachings because I got it from my teacher, my teacher got it from his teacher, and I got this report from this and this and this and so on back to the prophet. Or Sufis would have silsila or chain of... Of, of, of Sufi initiation. Others would use dreams, right? Oh, I dream of the prophet and the prophet told me this, etc. Some other people claim that they have spiritual vision. And even in the modern era, you have people who base their legitimacy on simply the mastery of Arabic language with the assumption that Arabic language will allow me to access hadith texts and reports of the prophet. And through those reports, we know what the prophetic path is. So, um, all of these are different forms of connections and they're all coexistent uh, across the Muslim world. They generate different forms of relationship, temporal relationship to the prophetic past. But the point is that temporal connection to the prophetic past is something that needs to be established, right? So there is a labor of connecting to that past. Hence you know, seeking knowledge, traveling in search of isnad or in search of silsila, in search of chains, uh, et These are This can be understood as labor of connecting uh, to the past to become a connector, right? That enables the transmission of prophetic teachings. But then there's the second labor. So if the first labor is the labor of creating temporal connection, then the second labor is the labor of assembling a jama'a or a, a collectivity, a, a community, right? That can serve as uh, the site for the transmission and social realization of prophetic uh, uh, teachings, right? In other words, to make it into sunnah, to make it into practicable model. So uh, you can have a con- temporal connection to the past, but if you do not have people who would listen to you uh, and follow it, then you know what's the point? There's no re- real, real connection. And so um, I see figures of authority as people who you know labor to. To, to create connection to the prophetic past, but also the the labor of cultivating community. And I think you know, community is something that has to be cultivated. It's uh, it's a sociological realization. It's a sociological achievement, right? It doesn't. It's never stable. It's something that you have to work every single day. And that's precisely the insight that I got when I lived with the Sufi master for two years in in Central Java. And it's the same idea that I got from reading. You know the. Uh, voluminous hadith literature. The prophet is always doing something, right? It's always, you know, fixing this problem and that problem, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And all of this is very important to make prophetic teachings into uh, a sunnah or the normative practice of the community. But of course, the point is that the community modulates the sunnah, right? Uh, For something to be a sunnah of the community, for a prophetic teaching, to be accepted as prophetic teaching and practicable, it has to be doable, it has to be recognizable, and it has to fulfill particular uh, purpose. And of course, you know, as you, you're a historian, you would know this, the past always looks different when seen from different sides. And the past looks different depending on the question That you have right, the past is like this abstract sea that can only become recognizable and and perceivable when you ask particular questions. So, the kind of question that the community asks will yield, I think, you know, different figuration uh, of the Sunnah. To give you a, a concrete example, right, um, if you go back to to early Islam, you have somebody like Ibn Mubarak, uh, who is a scholar and hadith transmitter, and he was active in the thawur, in the borders, uh, you know, between the Umayyad and the Abbasid um, uh, frontiers and the Byzantine. And he was there uh, along with all these warriors, right? People who wanted to safeguard the realm of Islam against the Byzantine in, in, in intrusion. And so his community, the community that he assembled were, was really a martial community of fighters. And so he wrote you know, this text called, a um, uh, famous text called al Jihad, right? The Virtue of Jihad. Uh, and if you read that text, then it, it consists of all these prophetic uh, reports of the Prophet as a warrior, as as, 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 as as really a commander. I mean, if one reads that book, then one will get the impression that the Prophet Muhammad was like a warmonger or something like that. And you have, you know, literature like the Maghazi literature, which is focused on prophetic wars, for example, right? Now compare that, to mystics or Sufis like Junaid in Baghdad, uh, who also assembled his own uh, community, who also transmit and try to reproduce the prophetic past. But the picture of the prophet that we have in that circle is very different from that that we've seen in Abdullah bin Mubarak because suddenly the prophet here is a mystic, is a is, is a spiritual traveler, etc. Et so in this sense, I think the kind of sunnah that is realized and that is transmitted to a particular community has to serve the need and the purpose of the community so in other words the consumer also shapes they are the, also the co-creators of the sunnah right so these two labors Nile the labor of connecting to the prophetic bus and assembling a community and connecting the two uh, is what I call um, uh, articulatory labor right in the the, the the technical term that I use is articulatory labor, and the, the notion of articulation of course. Uh, involves that you are connecting two entities, but in doing so you are changing both. So the Sunnah does not only define the community, but also the community in doing so also redefine uh, the Sunnah. So it involves a recalibration. uh, uh, recalibration. Now some, uh, and of course there are different modes of articulatory labor, some of them actually become paradigmatic right, and continues to generation. For example, the imagination of the Sunnah is law or, or the imagination among jurists uh, with its own kind of methodology, hadith methodology uh, to ha- how to access the prophetic past. Uh, others, for example, uh, imagine the Sunnah as a suluk, like the Sufis would see it as a Way of of spiritual wayfaring more than simply a, a, a law and 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 the the mode of articulatory labor you know, assembled by these people actually continues through uh, a generation uh, and becoming paradigmatic. While others just simply, you know, never becomes paradigmatic. Like uh, for example, um, a mode of articulatory labor based on dreams, etc. It's very difficult for them to become paradigmatic, right? Because there's no you know, modes of verifying and and uh, etc. So, in this sense, uh, Nile, uh, the history of Islam in the way I, I conceptualize uh, religious authority is a history of different articulatory variation, right? Which means that they, it, it is always history of Islam is always um, uh, is always uh, 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 characterized by multiplicity uh, of you know different kinds of sunnah, different kinds of jamaas. There's always competition, but also synergy. And this kind of reading is you know allows us to think beyond historicist or teleological view of Islamic history that oh there's the pre-modern and then uh, uh, early modern and modern, etc. but I think there's always you know different modes of articulatory labor coexisting within uh, the um, uh, within any given time
0: This is helpful, Ismail because. Really, what we do in Akbar's chamber is actually look at all of these actual different versions of Islam that have been practiced across the world in different times and different places. And yet, of course, all the people who practice them believe that they're actually Islamic and they're actually not just believe, they believe because they're told, they're taught, they follow people whose authority they respect and accept that this is truly Islamic. So mm-hmm. you're starting as an anthropologist, but also as, a, as an anthropologist with historical interest. Your book is, is, is a work of history as well as anthropology. You're starting with this basic recognition, aren't you, that, that we have all of these different varieties of Islam. And for Muslims, they practice them. They're, they're all legitimate. How what, what makes them all Islamic? So as you've mm-hmm. said, you've mapped out these different types of authority, claims to authority, chains of initiation, the classic Sufi lineages, blood claims of Sayyids, which have been more important in some regions in South Asia and Africa than in, and indeed in Southeast Asia, learning the ulama, the learned, yes. mastery of books and particular techniques of interpretation that make Islamic law, or even visions of particular charismatic figures or, right. or whatever I call them. But you're looking then for the common denominator, mm-hmm. the... the so, okay, well, what's going on that, that I can actually see happening in each of these cases, different right. as their, their their modes or claims of authority might be. Mm-hmm. And you pointed out, too, that that some of these claims become paradigmatic. And, and in mm-hmm. plain speech, I might just say that that's perhaps what makes some of these claims more influential and durable than others. Yes. Uh, which is, let's say, the claims of the ulama, that if you right. study Arabic, the Quran, the Hadith the techniques of interpretation, that's a model that's lasted
1: for certain right. Absolutely. Times, you know, Absolutely. Yes. Which is, of course, sorry, uh, if I, which is, of course, you know, it goes down to the sociological question, right? What, what allows certain uh, modes of articulatory labor to endure and to become uh, a widespread perhaps has to do with, you know, the question of political economy and government support and, uh, you know, state support, etc. Uh, so I think, uh, the question of authority is very much, you know, not only discursive, but also, you know, is, is very much one that is sociological and and, and and involves political economy, and I think we should not lose sight of that. And but oftentimes, Nile, and I just I just want to give you this one example, right? During the um, COVID nineteen um, uh, uh, lockdown here in Indonesia, uh, the government issued uh, uh, the, the, the 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 Ulama Council issued a fatwa uh, asked by the government that you know, Muslims should not pray the Friday prayer, right? And it was reverberated by the state and everybody should follow the, because this is a, an emergency situation. There's a rukhsa, uh, There's a, a permission not to pray um, a Friday prayer. But Muslims in different villages and neighborhoods still keep on praying Friday prayer because the prayer leader of their neighborhood mosque actually told them, no, you still have to pray. Uh, There's no such a thing as permission. And the people of the neighborhood and the village, they trust their neighborhood leader, whom they know personally, whom they know his devotion to the mosque, devotion to the community, who have served the community. So of course they would trust the authority of this figure. So in this case, in this one case, we see how, sure, you have a uh, state-backed ulama council, but is that more authoritative than the village uh, base the uh, uh, prayer leader for example that's of course an, an, uh, the question right this is a really important dimension
0: of your work isn't it as an anthropologist that even though as you mentioned your particular case study in your book was of uh, a leading very influential uh, mm-hmm. sufi master sufi authority in indonesia habib lutfi that's simply because that's what anthropologists do. You have a, a case study of something sociologically concrete and particular. Right. But, but but as you pointed out, actually, that that really authority is always has to be located in some particular social formation or community. And the words you were bringing up in in uh, your answer to my first question throughout your book, are these really two key and, in many ways, foundational terms within islamic tradition the sunnah the model of the prophet mm-hmm. and the jama the community and a community in any given time and place so you've got this in a sense i suppose a horizontal level that's going on right. the community mm-hmm. in any given time and place sort of in the in the net in, in the any here and now yeah. and also the sunnah which is what's been handed down through time and interpreted these different articulatory paradigms you've called them <laughs> and more influential than other, over the 1,400 years of Islamic history. Absolutely. But you've Absolutely. got this historical dimension too. So my next question, I want to come to this sort of this this temporal, this historical dimension of your, of your model of what is Islamic religious authority. So let me ask you, what's the role in your model of religious authority? What's the role of key founder figures mm-hmm. and also their heirs as the mm-hmm. living embodiments or representatives of religious
1: authority. Right. Thank you, uh, Nile. Yes. Uh, so, you know, my, my ethnographic research brought me to see, you know, parallels with the figures uh, in the past. And of course, you know, my focus was in the Hadramaut region of South Yemen and also in uh, Java, uh, Indonesia. And it seems to me from the early Uh, A period, Uh, you know, the earliest um, uh, Islamic communities that emerged in these two uh, areas were assembled by, you know, individuals like preachers, saints, and and scholars, uh, usually, you know, who came from the city. But the, the the key point is that they are mobile actors; that they travel around, right? And they usually would settle in a new place, and they start to cultivate a new. A, a community right usually in the hinterlands in the countryside and we have examples of this from you know West Africa to the Atlas mountain of Morocco all the way to uh, you know the central Asia and uh, uh Southeast Asia it, there's like pattern of all these people coming from the city learned people assembling uh cultivating a community among the tribal um, uh, and uh, country uh, people and in fact, Somebody, uh, a historian uh, of uh, of the Uyghur um, uh, Muslims, uh, Ryan Thumb, uh, 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 described that you know the narrative of Islamization is usually written as a narrative, uh, as a story of arrival. It always starts with an arrival of a key figure from a distant land who then connects those people to the prophetic uh, uh, past, right? And so when these figures come to a, a, a place, then first of all, they need to be recognized, right? Their authority needs to be recognized. Their um, their uh, uh, learning needs to be recognized. But usually, you know, their uh, scholastic learning are not really appreciated among people. I mean, most people are, are illiterate, and so. Uh, usually you know from the uh, existing records like hagiographic materials we see them as you know miracle working saints praying for the rain uh praying for you know a, a barren women to have children uh, etc right uh, uh and of course the challenge that these people face was you know the need to transmit the prophetic teaching in ways that can articulate well with the community and its or or its customs right because as you know many anthropologists have shown this uh, oftentimes when a, a muslim preacher comes to a region and he transmit the prophetic uh, a sunnah in ways that is too different from the local custom that people would reject it and so they would have to make sure that it gels well with local customs and it it mixes Uh, uh, it it, it uh, makes well Um, and these figures of course um, uh, uh, usually present themselves as embodiments of prophetic teachings right I mean they would use for example nasab prophetic um, uh, bloodline or uh, silsila uh, chain of sufi initiation to present themselves as the heir of the prophet as the living link to the prophet and so uh, they usually do not use text because people are illiterate but what they Basically, uh, what, what, what developed in this community is that, you know, people take these figures and what they do as Islam. So in other words, Islam is, is what the person, uh, 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 the, the, that person does, right? And uh, they are community builders. Um, they have to make sure to present, you know, to, to be hospitable. They, I, I think it costs a lot of money to be a, a religious authority in many places because you have to offer hospitality and you have to be generous. You have to serve as mediators and arbitrators between, you know, tribal uh, conflicts. And then, as I said uh, uh, to you earlier, they are supposed to be rainmakers, uh, which, of course, can mean that they need to be able to establish markets so that, you know, trades and commodities can pass through these tribal regions, bringing wealth to the people. And in doing so, they become accepted by the community and they would institute different rituals uh, that is, you know... um, in that is not so different from the rituals, from the existing rituals of the people. Uh, uh, they are there, and of course they they establish usually um, a sovereign territory, right? Like a, like like a haram or a sacred enclave in these tribal territories that you know they usually govern. Um, and so, in other words, what I see in this kind of uh, key founder figures uh, is like a replication in a smaller scale of what the prophet did earlier when he came to Medina as a mediator between the Aws and the Khazraj uh, tribes in Medina and uh, uh, creating haram, creating market, uh, establishing a, a, a sovereign community. Uh, and of course, when they die, these people uh, uh, are honored as, uh, as a local saint, right? And the, that his time uh, becomes the community's foundational past, in other words, which is ultimately linked the community to the prophetic past so in other words now the community has two foundational paths the saintly past and from through that saintly past to the uh, prophetic past and his progenies usually continue the labor of the founding figures you know taking care of the community taking care of the sovereign settlement hence establishing and and people believe that because the founding figure is a an embodiment of the of prophetic teachings and the living uh, 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 the heir of the of of, of the prophet, hence his progenies also becomes, um, uh, you know, continue that there's a barakah, there's blessings that is uh, is transmitted through the family. Hence you see the establishment of saintly uh, dynasties, right? And even in a place like the Hadramaut, uh, there were multiple Islamic communities, you know, close to one another, not that far from one another, but each of which revolves around distinct articulation of the Sunnah, precisely because the Sunnah is a Product of negotiation, product of recalibration between you know ideas of what the prophetic past is and the customs of the uh, uh, community, right? So you have different rituals, different um, you know ways of doing Islam in, in in different communities. In other words, there's no uniformity in, in a way. And I think the case that I've seen in the Hadramaut can also be seen in other parts of the of the Muslim world as well.
0: That, that's helpful because you've explained there, in a sense, a sort of uh, the history of the spread of Islam or the Islamization or the creation, mm-hmm. I suppose, in your terms, of many new Muslim communities in different regions of the world, whether in the Arabian Peninsula itself, in places like the Hadramaut of Yemen or in much mm-hmm. of Africa. we referred to uh, Xinjiang and the Uyghurs with the work of Ryan Thumb. It was mm-hmm. also early on at bus chamber I should uh, tell us right. this <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, and it reminded me very much of of my own work as a graduate student in, in southern India and going to various shrines of figures that you would call founder figures or in, in or indeed paradigmatic figures who become the founders of of local communities that then endure through through time and are remembered through time mm-hmm. and I think what's really kind of interesting about about your work as a as a social scientist as an anthropologist is that the actual historical model you're using here of these founder figures that these people who go from a to b and found a new community in b and then they're remembered thereafter and their actions are remembered as being really quite tangible and 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 concrete they okay. create a market or they miraculously or, 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 or otherwise. Or well. Well is
1: always important. Well, I, indeed. Absolutely. Well water is always also. important.
0: Yeah, Exactly. So all of these things. But that's exactly whether we read in Arabic texts from Sudan or some of the, the languages of West Africa, the languages of Indian Islam, Urdu or otherwise, in the Turki texts of Central Asia. This is how different Muslim communities around the world have described their own histories. We that's always right. find these founder figures. So this is actually what I suppose uh, as a social science model, this is the ethic vision of Islam. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the Emic vision of Islam, I should say, the yes, internal yes. vision of Islamic history yes. by different Muslim communities. And you're working with that in ethic terms as an anthropologist.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Even though you've said at certain points, yeah, historically most Muslims were indeed most people in the world weren't weren't literate literate. But mm-hmm. texts do have a role in your model, don't they? Of course, as they must, of course. Mm-hmm. Um Islam is a really—it's founded with the coming of the the, the, the revelation of a text, isn't it? And texts are completely mm. important all the way through. So, can you tell us what is the role of texts
1: in your model of how religious authority is constructed? Right. Thank you, uh, uh, Nile. Yes, a um, uh, text is 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 really important as a as a. Uh, of course I, I see text as a technology uh, right as, as a technology that allows the cultivation of particular kinds of community and particular imagination of what a uh, community uh, is. Uh, and so in the case that I've that I've looked at in my own uh, research, I mean what I just described to you in terms of the founder figures and, and all these multiple communities means that the Sunnah, has historically been subjected to sociological indeterminacy. Right, there's multiple figurations of sunnah, multiple realizations of the sunnah. There's no uniformity, and in a place like uh, the Hadramaut, that cre- that also adds to the social instability of the of of the region because the Hadramaut. Uh, was a a place you know characterized by weak state? There's no you know strong centralized state, and it it it, 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 it it's always being uh, trapped in this tribal warfare between you know different tribes. So it was very difficult to, to to establish a strong state. And of course the saintly dynasties, precisely because you know some saintly dynasties, you know one saintly dynasty would be would have followers from particular tribe, and the others have particular tribe. So they are also bogged down in this kind of tribal. Uh, And so starting, for example, in the 18th century, there was a Hadrami uh, scholar and reformer. And of course, the 18th century is a very famous time for all this reform, you know, so-called reform movements across the Muslim world. There are scholars calling for uh, reforms, societal reforms, and the need to establish in a way the primacy of the textual uh, and, and the primacy of uh, uh, the need for uniformity, right? So in the hadramaut that figure is Abdullah bin Alawi uh, Al-Haddad, um, uh, 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 you know, lived from the late 17th century to the uh, early uh, uh, 18th century. And he basically called for a new, or, or established, uh, introduced a new mode of articulatory labor, that very much hinges on on, on textual technology uh, to basically codify uh, the sunnah, right, into a set of synoptic, uh, creedal, uh, legal, ethical, and devotional or liturgical manuals. Uh, So, and and this text, um, uh, which are still recited and read and studied across the Indian Ocean, uh, are really simple. Uh, They're univocal, right? If you read their uh, legal muhtasars or the... A legal um, uh, abridgment, they're usually like very, you know, probably like 50, 60 pages, and it's just, it deals with the basics of religion. And there's no scholarly disagreement. There's only like one rules for everything. So uh, these are really the uh, uh, manuals written for the awam, for the general public. Uh, so there's no need to introduce them to different scholarly opinions, because that would just confuse uh, a people. And these are easily teachable texts easily teachable to common people, accessible to common people, teach you how to perform ablution, how to pray, how to do, pray zakat, uh, pay alms, uh, et cetera. So in using this kind of text, right, I think people like Al-Haddad, and of course this is comparable to many other you know, reform-minded scholars in different parts of the world, they, they basically objectify the sunnah, right? Uh, allowing the sunnah to be imagined um, as a culturally disembedded norms, assumed to be applicable everywhere. So if, you know, earlier, in, in the earlier case, we've seen the sunnah as very much tied to figures, tied to topography, tied to, you know, very concrete terms, and the sunnah is usually cumulative in a way that the the, the customs uh, uh, and the norms of the founding figures actually complement and augment the prophetic sunnah, hence becoming a, you know, a new a kind of sunnah here with the use of text, then we begin to see you know the sunnah as an objective it's frozen norms that is uh, somehow codified and, and 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 bounded and it should be uh, and, and assumed to be to be applicable uh, uh, everywhere and um and so that allows you know scholars like al haddad and his pupils to imagine a common sunnah for the regions of the Hadhrumod. In other words, he, uh, he he shifted the emphasis from you know authoritative figures to authoritative texts. So, in other words, if the, in the earlier case the Sunnah or, by extension, Islam is what the saints do, now the Sunnah or Islam is what the texts uh, say, in a way, right? But this is precisely this kind of technology and this kind of mode of articulatory labor allowed uh, for these objectified sunnah to circulate across an indefinitely um, wide range of contexts, right? Not only from different communities in the Hadramod, but gradually across the Indian Ocean from East Africa, the Swahili coast of East Africa, to the Malabari coast of uh, Southwest um, uh, India, all the way to Southeast Asia. And we see this Haddadian text, uh, the text authored by Al-Haddad or recommended by Al-Haddad and his uh, students are recited in different parts of the Indian Ocean world up to the present day. Like Al-Haddad's compilation of litany, for example, which is all taken from the hadiths, right? From prophetic prayers compiled into a prayer manual, the Ratib Al-Haddad or the Ratib al-Shahir is recited across the Indian Ocean up to the present uh, day. And and of course, it's spread with the migration of the Hadramis to all these different uh, uh, places in the Indian Ocean uh, uh, literal. So through that, the Hadadian mode of articulatory labor becomes paradigmatic, right? Paradigmatic. And uh, of course, it generates new kind of connectors. Uh, what Al-Haddad called Sheikh or teaching master, as opposed to this saintly uh, charismatic figure, who are not necessarily learned scholars, um, uh, uh, Nile, and I think this is important to note. They are not necessarily learned scholars. You do not have to be a learned scholars to teach this simple text; they simply have to study this text, you know, with previous teachers and teach them precisely because these texts are simple anyway. So this is precisely what led to the spread, the widespread, and the uh, becoming uh, this this mode of articulatory labor for becoming uh, paradigmatic. It you know automatically reproduce itself and reproduce quite quite fast. This is important, isn't it? This role of
0: text or text written by people who. Who become influential become paradigmatic because because what you're not doing in in your model of religious authority is is a kind of let's say uh, an anthropological postmodernism which indeed did did sort of happen in many understandings of studies of Islam in the social sciences through the 1990s 2000s onwards that that the, the kind of the sunnah is what you make it Islam is what any 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 particular Muslim believes it is but you're saying well there's a kind of a Texts act as a, a check on mm-hmm. the possibility to, for so and such and so and such to say, Okay, well, I think this is the sunnah. Checks, mm-hmm. uh, texts, uh, or texts written by influential figures mm-hmm. stop, or what to call a phrase, sort of try to prevent the entropy of the ummah, like you know, right. the, the, umma, the whole community or the notional community of Muslims becoming an infinite sort of let's say postmodern sort of version of an infinitely different number of communities that have nothing in common one another they can't anything is the same sunnah the same right sort of behaviors or or that they follow so texts are really important here and as Mm you've said they act in this sense as if i understand you rightly texts act as a a technology of religious authority, but in the sense mm-hmm. of community building and and community maintenance, that these communities don't go through entropy, they don't keep falling apart because they're saying, "No, I think the sun is this. I think the sun is that." The text sort right. of stops that kind of uh, right. as a technology to prevent that sociological falling apart of communities, with community the Jamaat being at the heart of what is to be. Right. Muslim in the traditional sort right. of sense, the Ahl al-Sunnah the, Jamaat, the right. key foundation to be a Sunni, to yes. follow the Sunnah of Muhammad, and be a member of the or a community. So and, you, and,
1: and, you've got and, these... and, and sorry, and 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 it and, yeah, it, it engenders um, a new form of authority as well, like this the teaching masters, the teaching you know kind of uh, people whose authority is based on the mastery on, on their mastery of the simple text, their ability to teach and follow a curricular instructor, as opposed to somebody who can, you know, serve as a rainmaker or, you know, perform miraculous deeds, right? So these are all authoritative, these are all, you know, claimants, you know, uh, to to the position of being connectors to the prophetic past, but it's a very different kind of connection. So in other words, the modes of connection, it's not only the connection that matters, but also the means and the modes of that connection also, you know, um, uh, change the substance of what is being mediated so in other words yeah yeah the medium changes what 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 is being mediated uh, in other words yeah that that's useful
0: and, and this model that this example you gave us of Abdul
1: al-hadad from
0: the Hadrama, just to sort of clarify for readers this is this coastal region of southeastern yemen which sort of sent out this abundance of 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 paradigmatic figures of, mm-hmm. of founder figures who go on to found communities. Yeah. Across the whole East, Eastern coast of Africa and indeed across coastal India and Southeast Asia, what's now Indonesia and mm-hmm. and indeed uh, beyond. So your model then is, 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 we, we're getting these sort of different sort of uh, building blocks or getting, you know, kind of more and more layers of what's authority. Mm-hmm. We've got founder figures and they're living heirs. We've yes. got texts Yes, and we've also got religious institutions. Then, mm. so can you tell us then how do religious institutions, which might be mosques, shrines, madrasas, or community centres, or whatever else, absolutely, uh, how do institutions fit
1: into your model of Muslim mm-hmm. religious Right. So, because this 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 model is uh, you know stresses the importance of community, right? Uh, uh, in the community as the co-authors of the sunnah right as the co-authors of islam uh, uh, in a way but of course community a community is a sociological achievement right it needs to be cultivated uh, it needs uh, uh, it has to be continuously maintained because community can dissipate it can uh, evaporate right uh, it, and it, of course it needs a spatial location for uh, the gathering right a com- uh, community community can be ephemeral uh, at Nile. Like for example, uh, the Jama'ad that realized itself five times a day in a neighborhood mosque. So, okay, let's think of a neighborhood mosque and the five daily prayers, right? That you can find across the Muslim world. First, you need the mosque, a place of gathering. You need a minaret. You need a, a, a caller to prayer. Somebody who calls the, uh, the Adhan and then the people assembled, right? For 15 minutes, Right, constitute itself as a jama'a, as a, a, a community with a leader, with an imam. But then, after prayer is over, they all dissipate and uh, <laughs> you know go back to their um, to their uh, uh, you know uh, to their houses or their, their shops, etc. So, in other words, it's ephemeral, right? It it, it it's not really stable um, uh, as a community. So, this means that there needs to be a mechanism for continuity. A mechanism for solidarity that can ensure durability uh, of, of a community. Um, uh, Sufi orders, for example, right? Tariqa. Uh, that's, for me, that is an ordering uh, mechanism. And I think, you know, uh, your work on, on, on Sufism also, you know, uh, see uh, Sufi orders as, as precisely this kind of, I think you call it the mechanism of, of tradition, something like that, uh, as, as a way to, to transmit, right? And I see it, uh, uh, also, you know, similar to that, as a as an ordering mechanism of that can transform networks, loose networks into a more durable uh, community based on discipleship with the Sufi masters, using various um, uh, uh, institutional formats and infrastructures like bayah or pledge of allegiance, sohba, the need for companionship, prayer manuals, etc. All of which serve to strengthen the relationship between the community and. Uh, the Sufi master. So that is a kind. So so in other words, here institution is is a I guess an infrastructure, a technology of durability, right? Hence, Sufi orders can become you know durable across time and generation. It has a corporate identity. The khirka, the robe of investiture, becomes a like an identity badge uh, that allows people to say, "Oh, I'm a member of this particular community." In the modern period, of course, you have other kind of Institutional format like the Jamia or the voluntary association or clubs, which you know have you know very using very different technologies and infrastructures, but again, as a mechanism for durability, as an ordering uh, mechanism, we have the modern uh, schools, etc. So, in other words, I see in all these different communities, yes, they are different from one another, but also there's a similarity that there's a commonality that links all these, you know, various figuration, institutional format, that they're all ordering mechanism in a way uh, to create durability, to create a community that is cohesive, uh, that is um, workable and, and, and of course, uh, durable. So as there are different articulation of the sunnah, there are also myriad figuration of jama'a, right? Uh, 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 of how an Islamic community looks like. Uh, it can be, you know, a Sufi order, or a voluntary association, or the neighborhood mosque, or um, a, um, a political party, or a caliphate, for example. These are all like, you know, I think you know, there's something in that. In common that ties them all together, albeit they are all of a different uh, figuration. But another crucial, yes.
0: I was simply going to add as well. I mean, the, the the version, the Muslim Brotherhood, isn't it? I mean, this is a type of organization or indeed institution as well, which is intended as it successfully did to outlive its founder, Hassan Ban yeah. in that case, or even something such as Al-Qaeda or ISIS. These yes. would fit within your model, wouldn't they? As, absolutely. As absolutely. They have their clave, they have their founder figures, their key texts, absolutely. their institutional forms, however concrete they may
1: be, or indeed sort of invisible for all sorts of right. reasons of illegality. Right. And absolutely, uh, Nile. And I think, I think, yeah, the point that I'm trying to make, uh, for example, in the book is that oftentimes this kind of different institution have been treated as different from one another, yes of course they are different but at the same time that should not uh, you know we should not lose sight of the fact that there are also similarities between them and i think they can on the one level be analyzed as you know different outcomes of a similar process and that process is that of cultivating a sunnah oriented uh, jama'ah, right but the the other crucial point that i want to to, to raise here is that this you know we have we have been speaking about different forms, institutional formats and different kinds of authority, different figurations of Jama'a. But we have to be careful not to uh, uh, see them as static or as ideal types, right? Hence, you know, you have the old anthropological division between the, 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 the Islam of the doctors and the Islam of the saints, the <laughs> Islam of the book and the Islam of the, uh, of, of, of the, um, of, of the person, of the human, etc., traditional is modern, because what I realize, you know, uh, uh, see, you know, from my ethnography, but also from my study of, of, of Islamic history is that many of these institutional forms can evolve, you know, from one type to another. And indeed there's a lot of examples that they evolve. Like for example, a sheikh ta'lim, instructional master in the Hadadian paradigm that is whose authority is based on, you know, his mastery of this m- simplified manuals, um the idea of the Sheikh Talim means that, oh, your authority is simply as a transmitter of text. But in some cases, and in the cases that I discussed in the book, there are certain Sheikh Alim whom the community recognize not simply as sheikh Alim, but gradually become seen as a saintly, Figure and so his community that is supposed to be a community based on text suddenly sh- gradually shifted to become a community based on the figure himself. So the figure outshines uh, at the text, perhaps for his piety or for his learning, uh, etc. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, his progeny uh, becomes like successor, simply successor, not simply as uh, teachers of this text, hence creating a saintly dynasties or in what in the hadramaut and in indonesia are called the mamsabate so becoming a, a mansab but also there are cases of saintly dynasty becoming a sultanate right the mataram sultanate in java uh, founded in the mid 16th century uh, originated as a saintly dynasty right uh, it started as a as as, as a madrasa becoming a, under a charismatic leader becoming a saintly dynasty and then one of the heirs of the saint you know gradually took over power and established a Mataram, uh, a, a sultanate. But also a Sufi order can become an empire, right? I mean, the most famous case would be the Safavid uh, uh, empire, or even a political party uh, like the Mahdist uh, in the Sudan, for example, right? From Tariqa to, um, to a political party. So in other words, yes, there are different forms, but precisely because they are all like similar mechanism that allows certain forms to gradually evolve uh, into into another. I think that's that's the point that I, I wanted
0: to make. Yeah, so, so you're showing, and um, we began earlier on, didn't we, by talking about, let's say, the the the, the content, if I could put it that way, of Islam, mm-hmm. the different ideas, the discursive of what, did, let's say, the realm of belief, as one often think about what is religion. It's about, this the realm of belief.
1: Mm-hmm. But,
0: but of course, as a sociologist, social scientist, you're very interested in the sociologically tangible. So you're bringing in that realm of belief, but also with the realm of not just the diversity verification, many different forms of what Muslims believe. It's As as you've explained now, it's actually the many different ways in which Muslims have historically, and indeed in the present day, organized themselves sociologically, whether in very local forms and perhaps in non-political, but nonetheless social formations or indeed in larger political formations, whether political Mm -hmm. parties or indeed states Sultanates, empires right and of course as a social scientist what you're doing you're not making moral or theological judgments here you're you're stepping out of as it were that the theological or moral sort of uh uh maze or, or at least the debates among between muslims themselves there and trying to find this sociological common factors that are mm-hmm. that are working through founder figures their heirs texts and institutions Right. So and institutions, of course, as you brought in, the key is that their durability, they outlive those founder figures. So again, it's that building block quality of, of your model mm-hmm. that actually shares well what survives through time. And that's obviously a classic concern of the sociology of religion. Mm-hmm. But finally then. I'd like to explore one other aspect of your model mm-hmm. um, which again is trying to deal with the generals and particulars really that you're really interested in and trying to find this sort of a, a unifying sort of analysis. Mm-hmm. so it's my final question. how might listeners use your notion, and perhaps you can explain that for us, your mm-hmm. notion of the concrete universality of Islam? Mm-hmm. How might listeners use this notion to understand their own daily encounters with individual Muslims or indeed with
1: Islamic institutions? Right. Uh, thank you, Nile. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, concrete universality. Um, of course, you know Muslims uh, uh, believe that that Islam is a universal uh, religion, right? And universal uh, is usually. Uh, uh, defined as a commonality that is something that is common to all that's that's uh, basically the definition of, of 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 universality and what is common for example what is common in two entities is uh, something that belongs to the composition of each right um, uh, uh, and so that kind of uh, understanding of universality uh, is okay you have sets of examples so let's uh, establish commonality through abstraction you abstract okay what is common in all this 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 set um, But if that is the case, if there is something that is you know ideationally common to all uh, 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 Muslims then I think that would put us in, a, in in a difficult position because in reality you know the kind of Islam that is realized in different parts of the world and historically are you know vastly different from one another and of course once you try to establish, what is the common ideas and common teachings of Islam? Then that can lead us to exclude other forms of of Islam. So I've been thinking about about that a lot, and it seems to me that that kind of uh, uh, definition of universality, which uh, you know goes back all the way to Saint Paul, right? Abstract universality uh, is not the only way of for thinking about about universality. Another way to think about universality is is what. Uh, You know, Hegel calls concrete universality. So it comes from Hegel, but also it was reformulated by Marx. And uh, in this kind of universal, um, uh, this conception of universality, commonality is not defined as something that exists as a product of abstraction, but as something that exists, you know, apart from two entities as its as its own entities so for example and I mean to give you an example uh, is the notion of the common ancestor right uh, and, and and the example that I use in the book is um, the palm which is the common ancestors of the date palm and the coconut palm right so the coconut palm in uh, the beaches of Java or, or, or India and the date palms in Arabia they are very you know they're different but they are also common they are also you know, common precisely because they share a common ancestor, right? But that common ancestor has already vanished uh, and so what we have is simply a different approximation of the common ancestor. But you know, date palm could not claim that it's closer to the common ancestor than coconut palm. They are just different and we do not know how to, you know, we simply do not have the enough information about the common ancestor precisely because it does not exist to, th- to say that date palm is closer to the a Palme the common ancestor then a, then a, a coconut palm. so they're all simply um, uh, uh, descendants of a of a uh, uh, of a, a common ancestor so in this sense um the common ancestor is also it's not an abstraction it's a concrete tree that existed uh, in history albeit historically prior but so it's something that is on the same level, as, the, as its descendants, right? So it's not something that you abstract as a genus that hovers above the species, but it's something that historically developed um, uh, through time. So universality in, in this sense, what is universal or what is common can be different from one another. So commonality does not necessarily means that everything has to be the same or uniform. It can be very different precisely because what is common is the common ancestor. It can actually contradict uh, one another. So from that, I begin to understand that perhaps what is universal about Islam uh, is not really the ideas, but it is the labor. It is the labor. And the labor is uh, the labor of this articulating norms and community, articulating prophetic past and the communal present, um, the labor that started with the prophetic labor itself, the first community in Medina, uh, and gradually, you know, uh, the, his successors and, and, and people in generation after the prophet Began to do similar, perform similar work in different parts of the Muslim world. All of which, you know, claim connection and claim the prophetic labor as its uh, uh, ancestral uh, labor. And so, in that sense, we have what is common is is really the work, the labor, um, but it's the very dynamic that engender different uh, discursive and sociological realizations of of, of Islam. All of which. Historically, develops out of a unity of 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 genesis, right? So that the yes, the and and all of them claim to be uh, the descendants of their common ancestor, uh, but none of them can actually claim that we are better. I mean, they always make similar claim, but we, as analysts, looking from outside, as historians, as, um, uh, as sociologists, as anthropologists, I don't think we can make that claim because. Um, uh, you know they all are approximation of a of a vanished uh, a past and they all have their version of what the prophetic past is that looks very similar to their own uh, present uh, situation so in other words just as there are many figurations of 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 islamic communities there are many ideas of the prophetic past in accordance to the community's present so in other words um yeah the, the prophetic past always approximates uh, the communal present uh, in a way because they always try to recalibrate uh, both so if there is a normative um, uh, point uh, i think uh, that uh, we all you know whether muslim or not we all should be open minded uh, with the uh, you know various ways in which islam has been practiced the various ways in which muslims have imagined the sunnah the various ways in which uh, muslims have practiced their religion uh, and I think it's precisely that kind of you know competitive um uh, 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 argumentative um, uh, history of Islam that allows I think Islam to become a world religion without even without you know the support of a, of, an, of an empire in you know places like Southeast Asia or West Africa or or, or East Africa uh, precisely because you know, they have to form, you know, they keep on forming different communities and competing. And, you know, if there's a competition and one party lost, then they would, you know, move to another place and establish uh, another com- another community. So this is really the force uh, uh, that made, you know, Islam a world religion. It's the force of, of diversity. And I think all of us, Muslims or not, need to appreciate that fact. Uh, and I just hope that the model that I gave you know, allows us at least to to appreciate that 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 simple but I think important um, uh, dimension of Islam that you know many Muslims have seemed to be forgot have forgot in 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 the in the context of 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 the modern uh, period precisely because of the drive for the unity of the ummah or the uh, uniformity of Islamic teachings. Uh, so that's this what I have really to say. Interesting point yeah and i'd also i'd
0: almost say that this is the point as we finish where anthropology meets almost theology that what we have here actually what is the concrete universality of islam what is actually the common factors Or actually different muslims in your word the labor of islam the actual doing of practicing the sunnah trying to maintain community albeit in their various, different, and indeed, as you said, sometimes competing ways. Professor Ismail
1: Al-Attas, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akhbar's chamber. Thank you. Thank you, Niall. Thank you so much uh, for having me. I really uh, enjoyed the discussion. <music>